Now is the time that we have the privilege to take up God's Word together. So I'm going to ask you, if you have a Bible with you, to open with me again this week to Psalm 118. We looked at the first part of Psalm 118 last Sunday, and we will take up the second part of it this week. As you turn there, I'm going to begin reading. I'm going to read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Then we will pray and consider God's word together. So listen as I read God's word. Psalm 118, I'm beginning in verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up on the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, when we come together, we do so at this time to worship you, to draw near to you, to engage you uh, with a wholeness of our being in truth and in spirit. Lord, we come knowing that what we open here, regardless of how ancient the words are and how, uh, when you gave them, we know that this is the living word of God, that it gives us instruction, it gives us correction, that in it we find guidance and strength and encouragement. And so I ask you, God, that you would be pleased to take your living word today and give it very clearly and freshly to everyone who's come here. I ask you, God, that you would help me, that I would speak your word very faithfully and very clearly, and that you, by your spirit, would attend to your word in our hearts, and you would give us a clearer understanding of your grace, of your salvation, of your power, of your love, of your excellence, and of your worthiness for all of our praise and worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as we began looking at this psalm last week, we went through the first half of it. And for those who weren't here, you can simply go back and read the first half of it. And what we began to do is see how often that this passage 
reiterates certain phrases. And as it takes up these phrases with repetition, it gives us powerful emphasis. Now, as we come down to the second half of the chapter, there is sort of a transition. We don't have the same degree of four times, three times repetition of phrases. There is still one more in this section that I've looked at, and that is that the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. But We somewhat looked at that last week and saw the amazing allusion to the right hand of the Lord doing valiantly. And in this messianic psalm, how when we see how often the scripture says Stephen is being martyred and the heavens opened up and he looked out up and he saw at the right hand of God, Jesus standing. The scriptures repeatedly telling us when he had finished all of his work of atonement, how he ascended and he seated at the right hand of the Father. The theme that we're going to look at this morning that really is going to bring into all uh, uh, focus all the pieces remaining in this psalm really flows out of the theme that's laid down in verse 14. So let me read that to you again. The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. Those are the three themes that we're going to look at this morning. And they are given uh, different expressions as we move through the rest of this chapter. God himself is my strength. He is my song and he is my salvation. And, and those are simple things to say. But we've got to go beyond saying that. When we say he is our strength, that's not just a phrase. Words become just words, and shorter phrases become uh, Christian greeting cards and or bumper stickers. This has to be far more than that, and, and indeed, when we look at it in its context, it comes out that way. One of the things that we look at in, in this, it says this, The Lord is my strength. He is the source of all of my strength. If you were to go back just uh, uh, to a few verses before that, he speaks of times where he's been under severe attack. You can see that beginning in verses uh, 10. All the nations surrounded me. I mean, the attack that he's under here, that he's describing, is it insignificant or is it overwhelming? All the nations are gathered against me. It's, it, it's a big group. He, he, he describes it further in verse 11. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. So not only is it innumerable, but there's no means of escape viable. He expands the sense of it even further in verse 12. Look what it says in verse 12. They surrounded me like bees. Now, I hope none of us personally have an experience with what that might be like. You know, the sense of it is not those kinds of things you see where men, uh, you know, try to have beards of bees gathered together. This, this is more the sense where you have agitated the bees and they are disturbed and they are swarming, and your head, they think, has become their hive. Now, that, that's a significant thing. Where we stayed for many years in India, just outside of the little apartment balcony where we were, there was a, a, an 
piece of cement running overhead. And on the bottom of that, a hive had been attached and was growing. And it was quite a distance from us, but that did not change the fact that when it was certain times of the day, even though we were about 20 feet away from it, you could not even step out on the balcony because the bees were so numerous and buzzing and violent. And, and there, there are so many and they're so prolific that they accomplish things that I still to this day can't explain. We have sliding doors closed completely. And it doesn't change the fact that by the next morning, there are five or six bees dead on the floor inside the house. You know, somehow just coming through, finding the smallest means to get themselves inside. The sense of bees all around. So all the nations, no escape, like bees buzzing all around. It's not just this, I look to the hills, and on all the hills far away, there's the enemies there. The, the phrasing of bees means it's not distant. It's right here. It's right now. It is ominous. It is dangerous. And what does he say to each one of those seemingly overwhelming odds and impossible circumstances? You remember, hopefully, he says repeatedly, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. The, the, the victory over those what would be absolutely debilitating, defeating, even death-bringing battles, the victory, he knows, is this, in the Lord. Not simply I cut them off, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. He knows that he goes out in the power of God. He goes out in the strength of God. He goes out in the enablement of God. The Lord is my strength. With that confidence, he's basically saying it does not matter what comes. It doesn't matter if it's one. It doesn't matter if it's ten. It doesn't matter if it's everyone at the same time. Because the Lord is my strength. When I'm leaning on my own strength, there are limitations, right? Most of us men will think, you know, if it's a one-on-one -on -one scenario, I could probably defend myself. Most of us are even probably rightly or wrongly confident. If there's only two or three of them, I think I could still probably take them and defend myself. The example he gives is one where all thought, I can defeat them. I can set myself free. I can achieve victory. All thought of, I got this, is gone. 100% gone. Where you're saying, yeah, I, I can't do this. But God can. And this, which is utterly impossible for me, is absolutely nothing before God. And therefore, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. In the, the same phrasing we get to the New Testament. You could say, in my name, to this mountain, rise up and be cast into the sea, and it would happen. Just that overwhelming sense and reminder of the power of God that is absolutely undefeatable and overwhelming. Whatever the enemy may throw at us, the enemy, Satan, 
whatever our enemies may throw at us, whatever circumstances, whatever trials, it does not ultimately matter. We cannot be defeated in this sense when the Lord is our strength. That's why the scriptures remind us as we move over to the New Testament in the book of Romans chapter 8, it says this, therefore we are more than conquerors. And I always love that phrase, and we've been looking at that recently on Tuesday nights, because uh, it's sufficient in almost any scenario to be a conqueror. You're a conqueror, you won. But the phrasing of the power of God, to, for us to get a sense of the surety of the spiritual preservation and enablement that he will give us to keep us in the love of Christ, it says, more than conquerors. Or if it, and that's a single word in the Greek, which is kind of like the idea of hyper-conquerors, over-conquerors. And we know that as we move to the New Testament further. We go to the book of John, and what does it say? That we are overcomers. And who is it that overcomes the world? But the one that has faith. And it, First John reminds us further again, what? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The Lord is my strength. And it's important for all of us to keep that in mind in every situation because we've got to understand this. Whenever we think that the enemy has attacked us, a temptation has arisen, circumstances that could get us down, and I stood strong. That ought not be a cause of boasting. Sometimes we may think, I did this. I mean, I didn't, I didn't start to kind of get down. I didn't start to kind of drift in untoward desires. I, I, uh, I just kind of rejected it i just kind of kept my eyes fixed on fixed on the lord i did it brothers and sisters be aware of this if you did it's because why christ is in you as we're seeing in the book of philippians he is at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure don't think aha sometimes i did it in my own strength and then occasionally, when it's beyond my own strength, then I need him. The power and the grace and the working of God is so pervasive and so profound that all those times that you and I think we did it, no! His strength. And we need to say in the face of every victory, declare together with the psalmist, the Lord is my strength. Because of him in me and his power at work within me, I have overcome. Because of him, I have cut them off. It is all him and all glory to him. The Lord is my strength. The second thing it says in this passage, because we're going to spend most of our time on the third one. The second thing is, the Lord is my song. And we'll end up coming back to this towards the end, but it says this. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. So the Lord is my song. He's my strength and my song. 
and has become my salvation. Well, we're going to find out it's really like this. It is only for those that God has become their salvation that He is their strength and He is their song. If you know not the salvation of God, you will not know the strength of God. And He will not be your song. And your song will sound just like everyone else's. But when you come to know the salvation of God, when you're aware of your utter need and dependence upon Him, and that He is the source of your strength, then He becomes the substance of your songs. He is the source of all my strength. He is the subject of all and substance of all my songs. It is in the tents of the righteous. And we're going to consider the righteous in a moment. And then it says this in verse 17. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. It is the firm confidence and commitment of this individual. And we'll see it also in the closing verses at the end. That what he is always going to be about, he knows there's going to be a battle. In this world you will have tribulation. But in every battle that comes, there is the grace of God, the strength of God, enabling him to be victorious. And through it all, he is also able to do what? Give praise to God. He has delivered me. He has given this victory. He has enabled me to yet live. He continues to give me breath. And he becomes the source of all of our song. We, we're not boasting in ourselves. It's interesting because you go back and when the children of Israel had achieved certain victories, they had insisted on having a king and getting Saul as their king. Though who was their king before Saul was their king? God was their king, and it was stated, you rejected me from being king for you. They said, no, 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 we want to be like all the other nations who have a king, a man as a king, who goes out before us and fights our battles. Now listen, do you really want Saul out there fighting your battles instead of God? I mean, they chose such a lesser. And in the midst of those kind of battles, you remember, here comes one man, Goliath, challenging the army. No one rises up to go and face him, including, yeah. I mean, you would have thought King Saul should have done it. When, ended, when David ended up coming and saying, I'll do this, you remember what they did. They tried to dress young David in Saul's armor. And what was the circumstances? It did not fit. Saul, when he was being selected as king, it says he was whole shoulders and head taller than all the rest. So ultimately, you got Goliath, big boy. If you were going to choose your biggest to go to battle with him, who should it be? But who was it? who was but a youth. David was but a youth. And he goes out there with a slingshot and he takes care of business. He defeats him. Because of that victory, he's also put into a position of leadership. And as he leads out uh, groups for battle, he's having victory after victory. So as they would come back from certain battles, the ladies coming out of the village, 
with tambourines. I know it's a strange picture because we live in a different culture these days. But they hear, hey, the army's coming by. Grab your tambourine and let's get out there and sing. I mean, it, it seems peculiar. We don't see that at the airport when people are returning these days. But they did it. And they would seemingly make up songs on the fly. And part of the songs that they made up says what? David has slain his thousands, but, or Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And so who's being praised in all of that? Well, Saul gets a little praise. David gets a little praise. But David understand when he first went into the battle, how did it happen? Yeah, you may come like at me like this, but I came, come at you in the name of the Lord my God. David understood, as the psalmist of so many psalms, that the confidence does not rest in men. It does not rest in horses. It does not rest in chariots. It does not rest in armies. Indeed, going back to the history of Israel, we understand this with certainty. The battle belongs to the Lord. You read throughout uh, uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, uh, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you read throughout the Samuels, you read throughout the book of Exodus, and all of these battles are taking place, and the Word of God is constantly saying this, the Lord gave the Moabites into the hand of the Israelites. The Lord gave the Israelites into the hands of the Assyrians. The Lord gave, the Lord gave, the Lord gave. What do you think my point is? The outcome in every battle depended not on weaponry, war tactics, or men of war. What did it depend on? God, God's power, God's design, God's will. And therefore, when the battle is done and the victory is won, where should the glory go? God and God alone. Because in the end, whatever David did, he did by the permissive purposes, even divine providence of God. All the successes that men had in their service were ultimately only accomplished by the strength of the Lord and His sovereign will. Amen? And we need to get that. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song and it says, and he has become my salvation. Now that is so important. Now in, in the context and the history of the Old Testament, it's important to know this. The, the term salvation, sometimes it's even salvations, deliverance. I was trapped, I was cornered, he delivered me. This, event, this circumstance befell me, he delivered me. There are ultimately many deliverances, many. I was sick to the point of death, and he delivered me. So there are, there are lots of different types of deliverances or salvations described in the scriptures. There were many under the Old Testament who experienced, um, in the midst of battle, the salvation of God delivering them from death at the hands of the enemy. But if they experienced only that historic deliverance and not eternal deliverance, the ultimate salvation, 
what does it matter? It only delays death, didn't it? Because that's, that's, the, that's the simple reality. All that man can ultimately do and all of our seeming victories, they only delay death. But in Christ, when we are united to Christ, what the scripture says, in him we have eternal life. And that eternal life, it says, those who follow me, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Yes, these bodies will still give way. They will still yield up the spirit and be buried and turned to dust in the grave. That is true. But that is not our life. We have a far more abiding one. And that abiding one is so much more glorious that we don't cling to this one the way the world does. We look at it and say, this is a pilgrimage. I'm passing through. It's not all about this. Actually, this is all about him. And, and, and all of this is intended that I might serve to his pleasure and serve to his glory and serve to his worth, that I might enjoy him infinitely forever. But we get it all twisted up. We get it all backwards. He is our salvation. And I want us to get a simple grasp of something of the scope of this salvation. Part of this salvation, generally, a simple sense of it would be a delivering from the enemy. But with the work of God, in terms of the ultimate salvation, it is a delivering us from the power of the, en the enemy. But the ultimate enemy for man is sin and death. And the scriptures are very, very clear about that. Romans 8, 2 says, look, the, spirit, the law of the spirit has, of life has set you free. Those who are in Christ have been set free from the law of sin and death. I mean, that's it. You are either in sin and death or you are set free in Christ. Well, how do I know? Well, if you live in sin, then you are still a captive to sin and death. Because when you've been set free in Christ, you are no longer that. You are now free. And so it is a, uh, uh, this salvation, I would say it is a separating and altering salvation. It separates us from who we were, and alters what we do. I'll show you a little more about that, the way it says it in Romans 6, 23, reminding us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Death is done away with when we're united to Christ. Romans 6, 16 and following says it this way. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, which means take a look at what you do. You are slaves to the one that you obey. Either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. One or the other. Which is it? Are you a slave of sin or are you a slave of righteousness? Which one are you? Not which one do you want to be. Which one are you? And it says this, verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. That's the, that's the, that's the reality. It's, you were a slave and you didn't escape it. You didn't find a way out. You didn't pick the lock, break the chain. 
run away when sin wasn't looking. You didn't do that. You were there. You were trapped. Tragically, you were happy in your sin oftentimes. But then it says what? But thanks be to God. Because there was a time that you didn't know that sin leads to death. You didn't know the effects of it. You didn't know the result of it. You didn't know the emptiness of it. I mean, that, that's the deception of sin in the world. The People are out there and they're thinking, uh, doing this and doing that will bring me pleasure, will bring me joy, will bring me satisfaction. They don't know the emptiness of it. And we begin to see this all of the time. Uh, it happens so often when when. You just watch what's happening in the news and in the media, and you see people who have seemingly got it all, and they overdose, or they take a shotgun, and they end themselves. And a lot of people are thinking, wait a second, they had success, they had fame, they had all that money could buy, they had all that the, the, the world could offer, all the pleasures of, of, of the body, they had... They had everything that everybody wants. Yes, they did. And they somehow still realized what? It's empty. And what, that's what the grace of God does when he saves us and separates us. Because when we're, we're in that sin, we, we may not realize what it was. But when the Spirit comes and begins to bring conviction, we now begin to look at that sin and look at those things. And we say... It's emptiness. I don't want anything like that. Even the scripture reminds us how someone who would step away from those things, but then goes back to them, it's not because they, uh, they turned from, from their sin to God. They stepped back from their sin, but then like a dog returns to its vomit and a pig to the mud, so the sinner returns to that sin now but here's the reality once we realize by the grace of god that's vomit are we going back to it no way there's no way i'm gonna go back and take a bite of that I'm not gonna go back and sniff and have, and any of the things that dogs do to that because it's absolutely disgusting I mean, it, undesirable, nor are any of us necessarily urgently inclined to go wallow in the mud. Why not? I'll tell you why. You're not a dog, and you're not a pig. You're a human. But that's the example. A human who's still a slave to sin. I, you know, I, I say this as, as, as nicely as I can. And it's not going to sound nice. I'm just prefacing it that way. Uh, they're seeing their sin, which is vomit, and they're going and having another sniff and lick. And you're thinking, why? Why would you do that? Because they're in sin. And, 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 it, and we say, that's gross. It makes no sense. You look at the dog. It's gross. It makes no sense. But he seems to think he just found a cupcake. You know, he's just enjoying the thing. 
And so even if it doesn't make sense, it only doesn't make sense when you've been set free from that and you're able to see it for what it is. It is, it is vapid and void. I don't want it. Oh, the grace of God that sets us free from those things. And, and, and thanks be to him, we've become obedient from the heart. Verse 18 of Romans 6. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We used to be in there. And here's the thing. The slaves of sin delight in sin. The slaves of righteousness delight in righteousness. That's why the slavery is a tricky idea for us in these phrases. It, because the term is, who do you live for? But we usually think of slaves as being forced to do what they don't want to do. No, not in this sense. These are slaves that delight in what they do. As indeed, as the children of God, as the servants of God, as the happy slaves of God, we delight to do what he would have us do. So salvation is separating and altering. It delivers us from our personal enmity. We were at, at, at enmity with God, and now we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we're reconciled. He delivers us from uh, our, our, the judgment that would be ours, where we're now justified and declared righteous. He delivers us from the painful eternity of wrath to come. Even it's important to note this, He delivers us and disciplines us from practicing evil. Those that God delivers from slavery to sin, He disciplines should they go back to it for a season. Now, how do we see that? Look, at, look in, in Psalm 118 with me. This is the way it's stated in verse 18. The Lord has disciplined me severely. You say, wait a second. That seems, that's strong language. Yes. Why would he discipline us severely? Because the, the, the pull of sin is strong. The passions of the flesh which still wage war within us are strong. And severe discipline is what we need. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not, the way that it's phrased, but he has not given me over to death. So as long as I still have breath, even though things are bad, even though I feel the weight of him upon me, even though I'm utterly displeased and utterly dissatisfied with everything that's going on, he hasn't given me over to death yet. It's also interesting to note this, that the, the idea of God's discipline is not to be taken negatively it's not to be understood in in a wrong way now some may say for example if you read in leviticus as god is speaking about how he disciplines the children of israel he says this in uh, leviticus 26 um, verse 18 verse 28 verse 24 says something like this in verse 24 i will chastise or discipline or punish you seven times for your sins Wait a second here. Seven times? Isn't that a bit much? Shouldn't it be one for one? When someone was, to was, was caught stealing or embezzling, were they simply supposed to return that? 
or were they to pay more? Remember when, uh, when God in his mercy uh, calls to Zacchaeus to come down from that tree because he's coming to his house to say, he says, anyone that I have defrauded, I will return four times as much. Why is that? Well, that seems too severe. That seems too harsh. Here's the reality. Whoever, when they're disciplined, says, I like it. Give me more. A, a child is grounded. Well, uh, for example, let's, we, we, we have to work through this maybe historically, you know. Once upon a time, punishments were meted out with a rod. Maybe you've heard of such a thing. Maybe you've experienced such a thing. Very few who bore the rod on their backside ever said, I think I need three more to really get the point. No one's ever done that, uh, nor has anyone who's been told, that's it, two weeks with no television. I don't think two weeks is going to really get it done. I think you need to, I think you need to take my phone and you, who, who does that? We don't. We actually potentially bargain for less. We bargain for less, and we always feel like we got too much. But rarely has it actually fixed us <laughs> and stopped us from doing what we were doing. God was intentionally going to punish them for it seven times for their sin. Not, and ultimately, it's not what they really deserve for their sin. Because what's the wages of sin? Death. So, is he killing them? No. But he's giving them a, a severe seven-fold punish, punishment so that they would get the sense, I don't want to do this anymore. And the idea is this, and it ought to be this as, as it wells up in the heart of us as believers. It's not, it's not just... I'm not going to do this again because the punishment, she hurts. No, it's I'm not going to do this again because it's wrong, because it's displeasing. You know, most parents, when they mete out punishment, it has not been, ah, good, you did something wrong. I've been waiting to give you this punishment. I've been holding this and waiting for the perfect opportunity. Here it comes. That's usually not how we punish as parents or how you who don't yet have kids will punish. It is usually with reluctance and hesitance, you know. I want to punish them enough that they get the point, but I, you know, I don't want to overdo it. Um, but I don't want them to not get the point. And so there's, the, there's this struggle, and we don't know the answer. And sometimes we may err on the side of it seeming a little too harsh, or we may err on the side of it not being harsh enough. Because we are what we are, just humans. But God knows. And the scripture reminds us of this wonderful pattern of suffering and even ex uh, uh, of discipline. And explains this discipline as the very unfolding of God's love. In Hebrews 12, it says this, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Or chastens the one he loves. He chastens every son whom he receives. Everyone gets it. The way that it, it's said in John 15 is every vine that is in him, he prunes so that they bear more fruit. 
fruit. There is progress. But it's important to note this. Hebrews still 12, verse 7. 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If someone remains undisciplined, unpunished, it's because they're unloved. Most of us don't think of one of the most extraordinarily clear expressions of love as discipline and punishment. Those whom the Lord loves, He punishes. If you're in sin and you're able to just carry on and enjoy it, and things aren't falling apart in your life, and, and, and your heart isn't grieving, and everything is you're just jumping and, and skipping down the yellow brick road, and all is seemingly good, that's a bad place to be. What's good is when you keep stubbing your toe, when you keep getting scratched by thorns, when, when, when along the way, the path that you're not supposed to be on, you keep getting messed up and miserable. That's a blessed place. But you're not supposed to stay in that place. You need to repent. And repentance in the scripture is not just confessing. Yep, I did it. No. Repentance is the term that's translated repentance is spoken of as a change of mind. It's not simply acknowledging you did it, but thinking differently. Before, I would do those things. Now, I'm not going to do those things anymore. Repentance, even as John the Baptist is describing that to those brood of vipers who would come. Look, repent and do deeds consistent with repentance. Real New Testament repentance is this. I don't do it anymore. So if someone comes and says, I repented. They're often saying, I confessed it, I acknowledged it was wrong. If you kept doing it, you didn't repent. <laughs> you confessed it, but you didn't repent. Now, real repentance will also involve a confessing. But we're so thankful for the love of God. Now, what it says concerning this discipline in verse 11, it says this, For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The design of discipline is that we do differently. The design of discipline is not to destroy. The design of discipline is that we do differently. And the grace of God does not let us go. The love of God says, I'm not going to turn a blind eye and let you go and do what you want to do. I'm going to keep coming after you. That's why we talk about the love of God as a relentless love, as an eternal love, as an unending love. When he has set his love upon us, mm -mm. When, the son, uh, when, when Jesus as the chief shepherd comes and seeks and saves the lost, he doesn't save them. Just to let him go again. And if one of those hundred sheep that are his and in his fold wander off, what does he do? Eh, I got 99, I'm good. No, he doesn't do that. 
He leaves the 99, the scriptures say, and he goes and gets that one, searches till he finds him, lays him on his shoulders, and brings him back. I am not going to let you go. I love you too much. I mean, that is uh, merciful. And so, and it's quite challenging because I'll give you one, one example before I move on to the next thought. In the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6, all right, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, David has now become king. As David has become king, it comes into his mind, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is not in Jerusalem. Boy, I want it in Jerusalem. And so what does he do? He goes with a group of people to have a, 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 a real party as they bring this back. But you know what they did not do with, with going to get the Ark of the Covenant? They did not ask themselves, what does God say about this Ark? How are we to approach this Ark? How are we to handle this Ark? How are we to carry and transport this Ark? Everything belongs to God. How do we do this in the way that he has prescribed that is pleasing to him? They didn't do that. They just thought, we want to do this for the Lord. We want to bring it back, and we're going to do it for him in the way that seems best to us. Do people do that? They do it all over the world. Churches are formed on those ideas, doing things the way they like, not necessarily say, seeking through the scriptures, God, what pleases you? What have you instructed? What, what would you have us do? And so David goes and they do this, and instead they put the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart. And they begin to bring it back on a cart. Now, they had been instructed, you're supposed to have these specific poles, very long poles, that go through these hoops that are in the side of the Ark, and then certain men, only Levites, are to carry those. But it was a long distance. Don't you think it's pretty impractical to think that men would have to carry it that far? That's inconvenient. When eventually they do, they found out that God strengthened those who carried it to be able to do so. Do it God's way and you will find God's strength and God's sustenance. But they put it on a new cart, which is strange because the ark had only been transported on a new cart one time before. And that is when it was being sent back to them by their enemies. Who knew nothing of the ark, who knew nothing of God's law. They put it on a new cart and they sent it back. And so here, instead of following God's pattern, they followed the prevailing patterns that they had seen. And as they're bringing it back, what happens? It jostles, hits a little divot in the road. It looks like it's going to fall and tip over. And so Uzzah reaches out his hand to stop it from falling. Is that not a good thing? The ark might fall. I want to protect it. Is it not a good thing? They're bringing it back to Jerusalem. He doesn't want it to fall. It all seems like good intentions, good motives. No, not good intentions and good motives. God's way. If you've got good intentions and good motives, then by all means, give yourself to God's way. Give yourself to understanding what God's word reveals. And so he reaches out and he touches it. The anger of the Lord is kindled, it says, and he strikes him down. He dies right there. Touch, dead. And the scripture tells us 
in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 8, and David was angry with the Lord because he broke out against Uzzah. How dare God ex exhibit his anger, show his punishment in this when all of our intentions and all of our motives were good. And David was angry with God because he did not like what happened. But listen, David was the one who organized that whole thing. Would God have been right to not only destroy Uzzah, but every single one in that party? If fire were to come down from heaven and everybody in that little group caravan was to be done, would God have been wrong? They had all set aside his word and his will to do it their way. And then when he wasn't pleased, they were angry. When God acted in discipline, when God displayed his wrath, David was angry. But, thankfully, David learned later. His anger soon turned to fear. Oh no, what if, his, what if it happens to me? And then after a time, he went back to get the ark. And this time, he did it with, how would God have us do it? took Levites and he took poles and he did it God's way and God blessed and pleased and enabled them to bring it back. If, if God's display of anger and wrath and discipline and trials and troubles help us to get from doing it our way to please ourselves or in the way that we see right and moves us to search what is God's way and to be committed to do it his way, then it is a good thing. Is a right thing. It's a glorious thing. And I'm just going to give a few more passages. If you were to read through um, the Psalms, Psalm 119 more particularly, the psalmist says this, before I was afflicted, that is, is again, facing all kinds of troubles and things I don't like in my life because of, um, before I was afflicted, it says this, I went astray. What's his recognition? Left alone, I just did it, what I wanted, when I wanted, where I wanted, and then it began to be pro troublesome for me. I was afflicted, and so what happened? When I was afflicted, I went, before I was afflicted, I went astray, now I keep your word. The design of the discipline is to take someone from doing it their way to now keeping his word. And I'm just going to read without explanation a few more verses. And I think that these verses will be self-explanatory as you listen to them. It says this. In verse 75 of Psalm 119. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 107, I am severely afflicted. Give me life according to your word. In Isaiah, he speaks to the children of Israel, and he says this, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver, and I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. How should I allow my name to be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. 
So the wonderful, loving discipline of God. Also want to note uh, in this, his salvation is not, not only separating and altering. His, his salvation is sovereign and absolute. Actually, there's so much more. We're going to have a part three. Because I don't want to do, I don't want to shortchange what, what is in this passage. But one thing is this, um, wh- when we begin to unfold this, it's going to begin to explain this salvation. It's going to say, uh, verse 19, open to me the gates of the righteous. So he's wanting the gates of the righteous open to him. But here's the problem. What do the scriptures say about men? Verse Psalm 143, verse 2 says this, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Okay? So now, open the gate of the righteous. Okay, everyone who's righteous, get on in there. Who gets to go in? Well, you look around, no one living is righteous before him. And so what, we get to, what we're going to take up and look out next week is this, the glorious way that God accomplishes salvation by giving all of the things necessary so, so that ultimately we would say regarding our, our life, our repentance, our salvation, the change of who we were into what we are, the hope of what we will be when we are with Him, we are able to say this, and I say this simply in closing, verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was a slave to sin, now I'm a slave of righteousness. I was in darkness, now I'm in light. I was un righteous and now i have been declared righteous in christ this is the lord's doing and it is marvelous in our sight amen we're going to expand that idea next week as we look at the the ending section of psalm 118 let's pray lord we are just amazed at your word and we just pray that you would just engraft into our hearts even more clearly the sense of these simple things that we've looked at today, that you, O oh God, you are our strength, and we need to look to you and lean upon you and learn from you at all times. Lord, you are our salvation. You have set us free and you, from the power of sin, from the punishment of sin. Indeed, you have delivered us from the practice of sin. And we thank you that you will continue in love to discipline us, that we will not continue to practice what is not pleasing in your sight. Lord, we thank you for that love that will not let us go our own way or the way of the world, will not let us fall permanent victims to the desires that wage war within us, but you in love will continue to discipline us and by your power and grace, draw us afresh to where we ought to be. We thank you, Lord, that you do rescue us, that you do keep us, that you do preserve us. And we thank you, God, that you are our song.
because of our, you are our strength and you are our salvation. Lord, we want to speak of you. Speak of you when we see anything good in us. Speak of you when we see anything good in others. Speak of the need for you whenever we see anything bad in the world. Think of your deliverance whenever we think of what we were. Think of your strength when we consider what we need to do and what, what we need to flee from. Lord, may we, may you be at all times and in our, all places our song. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.